The title of this morning's talk is The Path of Connectedness. I'll start by placing this talk in the context of the other two of the last previous day. So, uh, I know some of you are only for the day here and and that doesn't, what I just said, doesn't mean that the previous talks are a prerequisite to follow this one. But since most of you have, have been here since Friday, let me just relate them briefly. On Friday, I talked about what we can do to heal our individual selves. Yesterday, I talk about what we can do to heal the world from the rift, the separation created by the culture of money. Today's talk is also about healing the world, healing our collective existence, but this time from the rift, from the separation created by the culture of self. Obviously, these talks are related in many ways. Money and self are connected indeed. Our individual person, our collective person are indeed connected. Connected. And, and yet, this talk hopefully will stand on its own. So let me start by considering how the culture of self stands in the way of our connections with others. And I'll start by quoting from Johanna Macy's Macy, um, scholar and socially committed fellow follower of the Buddha, who puts it this way. She says, the crisis that threatens our planet, whether seen, seen from its military, ecological, or social aspect, and I would add economic aspect, of course, derives from a dysfunctional and pathological notion of the self. It derives from a mistake about our place in the order of things. It is a delusion that the self is so separate and fragile that we must delineate and defend its boundary that it's so small and so needy that we must endlessly acquire and endlessly consume. And that it's so aloof that as individuals, corporations, nation states, or species, we can be immune to what we do to other beings. Well, 
was following up on what she said. At the individual level, this path pathological notion of ourselves leads us, makes us barricade ourselves behind an overwhelming sense of me and mine, excluding from our mind everything that doesn't fit into the me and mine categories. It, it, of course, this is a, an extreme depiction, but we, we tend to go that way. And as we do that, our lives end up being reduced to the enclave, the narrow enclave of the ego, who sees itself as this separate individual disconnected from the larger whole. And we do the same thing at the collective level, because we we end up barricading ourselves behind some collective identity, a collective self. What do one, we could call a we self, and which somebody very aptly has called a we go, <laughs> a we ego. We see ourselves as identifying with a clan, a group, an ethnicity, a country, not on the basis of our connectedness with each other, which is in abeyance, but on the basis of our disconnection, if not antagonism, so towards some real or imaginary other. And so last month, at least the the official channels in this country were using 9-11 exactly that way. Even nature can be depicted as the other, as an enemy. You know, there's this book of quotes from all kinds of people around the world that I've been quoting. It's called Six Billion Others. Here are two, two gems about nature. This is from a guy called Jacques. He lives in France. This is what he says. Nature is something I don't like because I'm one of those people who believe that the pecu peculiarity of man is to escape nature. That nature is savage, bestial, animal, and civilization is the complete opposite. Civilization is what man has created using nature. So I prefer gardens to f forests. I prefer built things to natural things. You know, I just realized, when I was about 20, I would have fully agreed with him. I, yeah. There's another quote from 
a woman called Jasmine, who lives in Los Angeles. She says, nature doesn't play an important role in my life. I don't go hiking. I don't go to the mountains. In fact, I'm scared of large mountains. I'm scared of the oceans. So I guess I could say that I'm also scared of nature because it's so powerful. We can sympathize with that. The ocean is so immense, the mountains are gigantic, and then there are those animals. To be perfectly honest, I think I'm scared of nature. Fair enough, not that uncommon, you know. And then we are ready to distrust our fellow humans even more than we distrust nature. Both to distrust the individual fellow humans and the collective humanity. Let me just, I mean, one could illustrate this in thousands of ways. Just, just one example that came to my mind. It has to do with participating in politics, where we really end up putting most of our effort into demonizing our opponents, rather than getting on with the task at hand. And so often as we participate in politics, and I try to do that, we end up fracturing humanity rather than healing it. Uh, an example, and this is not a very blatant example, it's a very mild example. Uh, a few months ago, Raquel and me decided to attend a, a meeting organized by Move On, you know, get their emails, and, and the meeting took place in the at the Rhinecliffe Hotel, right across the river from here, quite near our home. And so I was a novice. I, I haven't been to many such meetings. And so I had expected that our interactions would bring our wisdom and our connectedness out. But no. Most, if not all, I heard at the meeting was about blaming mostly the Republicans and how we, the progressives, fair enough, could get advantage of our enemy. Of course, I do agree with the progressive agenda. But even when talk about, talking about political strategies, could we not remind ourselves that we are all part of the human family? Nothing wrong with winning elections, of course. But do we need to reduce our social endeavors to that? Yes, try as I did in that meeting. I couldn't find the space to make that point without creating another antagonism. 
discuss very clearly that not all there is in the political arena and in yesterday talking in the inquiry we shared information about Occupy Wall Street which seems to be a pretty open space for common knowledge, common interaction among activists and uh, Maya among others reported on that here in the inquiry. It's in fact what would mostly matter in our public life is not to score political points, is to cultivate connectedness. I was glad to to read a similar point in the article in, in The Nation magazine, a publication of the left, quite political. But it argued, as I'm arguing, that the key for pol effective political action is not so much success in the electoral process, but binding people together, building connectivity. And I would add, to be able to transform our inner lives as well in the process of endowing us with an, the ability to connect with others. So, in some, well, our lifelong training has been, been to vindic vindicate our side of things while opposing the other side. In our interaction with others, love and connectivity show up too. But unfortunately, there's a, a narrow space for love and connectivity to show up. It's that space that remains after the antagonisms are played out. And at times, this space gets impossibly narrow. Is this the way to run our lives? Could we not, instead of, instead, prioritize connectivity, not conflictivity? And if if that's what we want to do, and I hope it is, how do we accomplish it? How do we make the shift? How do we endow our relationships with all our fellow beings, with the openness and connectivity conferred by love? How do we turn the world into our lover? which is, by the way, the title of the book by Joanna Macy, from where I, I took that quote, The World as Lover. How do we allow ourselves to be or become vulnerable to love? Vulnerability is a key word here. 
It involves making ourselves open to both the ups and downs of life. True, it ends up making things sometimes messy, disorganized, untidy, and at times even downright right painful. And yet, this is a relatively small price to pay for the gift to be able, of being able to experience the wide spectrum of our lives, both individually and collectively. I've praised vulnerability in the previous two talks this weekend, and I must do so again in the context of our social life. Those of you who are here may recall I praise vulnerability, illustrating it with a, a poster that I have here. It's actually from a um, publicity of the chemical bank. And, and that's vulnerability. This is uh, our control world and fake control world, by the way. Um, and so I'm talking about this now in, in our collective life. And my illustration here concerns the Festival of Holy. Holy is the Indian equivalent of carnival, only that it displays an exuberance that only the Indian subcontinent can provide. During it, among other things, people bombard each other with large balloons full of colored water. <laughs> colored, imagine, so you get colored too. They explode an impact, and you get drenched and stained when you get hit by one of those. Here's a first-hand account of that festival. It's uh, from a woman who used to work at IMS, Inside Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And I don't know whether she's back there or not, but anyway. She was spending time in India. I'll just extract a few items from her chronicle. Suddenly the color explodes over me from above. I don't even see the balloon, just feel the impact and wetness bloom on my back. My arms, feet, cheeks are spattered in turquoise. Flustered, incense. I flounce up the flounce up the steps of a gat. Gat is a docks there, and march through the marketplace, trying desperately to maintain my dignity. <laughs> Holy, the festival of color, direct delivered directly to my person. Have they not tact? 
My clothes are ruined. I feel humiliated. My cheeks spattered with blue drops. I slink like a wet, wet dog back into my guest house. The festival energy has taken over the city. Music blares from scratchy speakers on the street, and the boys flail their arms, hips gyrating in tight circles. Little girls strut about beneath bright parasols. Many foreigners flee the city. <laughs> Feeling the friction in the air, having heard the stories. And here's one. Last year, a Danish tourist left his hotel for five minutes in the morning of Holy and returned two hours later, stripped completely naked and smeared in cow dung. There's <laughs> <laughs> India, of course. And it's all very benign, by the way. Doesn't sound like There she goes, Anna Fender is her name, the author. After several months of living in India, I realized what I had really come here for was to unlearn my defenses, to practice surrender. I watched how my mind wanted to keep everything under control, to be spared from discomfort and irritation. I soon learned the impossibility of this way of functioning in my new environment. The more I fought with the chaos and disorder around me, the more miserable I felt. Part of me longed to go, to let go of the desperate struggle for control, to finally touch the core of my own vulnerability. The other part of me wanted a plush hotel with air conditioning and a bathtub. <laughs> so she goes on and on. And she says, we run home along the gats to the sound of breaking glass on the streets, past color-spattered policemen standing about, <laughs> past cows, goats, and dogs splutched with color. We had come face to face with our fear and with that potent, wild energy we had felt building in the city's, city's core all week. I knew then that I had come to Varanasi for this purpose, to be immersed in the marketplace, based in wildness, absorbed in the elements, the water, the dung, the ash. I knew that I had to let go of everything for the transformation to occur. Something inside me had opened. In letting go, I found myself full of a boundless freedom. Wet, limp-limbed, shaking from exhaustion, heart-throbbing, I returned, having broken through layers of fear and dirt and ego. I returned, having touched something deep down in myself, something uncontainable. What is this something 
uncontainable, unconfinable, that dwells within ourselves. It has to do with having left behind the relentless construction of a separate cocoon for ourselves, with even beginning to question this such social construction of a separate enclave in which our relationships with each other are exclusively mediated by money, by its norm, and its values. Yesterday I talked extensively about the money enclave. Today I simply wish to recall an image from that talk. You know, I had built a sheet representing the wall here, separating the world of money from our world, and I put a number of posters to illustrate the nature of that separation. And one of the posters included a famous saying from Adam Smith three centuries ago about the invisible hand that's supposed to look after economic well-being. We just let that invisible hand do its work, everything will be okay, he suggested. I mean, maybe he wasn't that uh, convinced of that, he said frequently, but we eventually took him up as if he hadn't said frequently. Because of this invisible hand, he said, we only need to, need to pursue our self-interest. Invisible hand takes care of the rest. Does it? Of course not. Might it not, in fact, pick our pockets under the cover of invisibility? Whatever wee bit of, bit of truth there may be in Adam Smith's prescription concerning the economy, the fact is that it can end up being an excuse for disconnection, for indifference towards the suffering of others. We surely ought to be able to do better than that, right? But how? Well, I suggest that we take a cue from Mr. Adam Smith and do exactly the opposite of what he prescribed, that we extend a very visible hand to each other. And I'm not just talking about financial matters, of course. A helping hand. particularly to re-establish the fabric of our society through interconnection, through meaningful conversation, as of course uh, the Occupy Wall Street uh, saga is trying to do. Wherever it may take place, our conversation with each other should not even be limited to words. 
it should include all forms of sounds. Singing, of course, it's a beautiful way of connecting. Gestures, body language, holding hands. And any other forms of physical and non-physical contact, including at times, in the correct time, in India, throwing balloons of colored water to each other. A conversation that, in fact, does even go on subliminally and invisibly as when we sit together here in meditation and we do connect by doing that. That we extend the visible hand not only to our fellow humans but to nature, to Mother Earth as well. Yesterday Diane Allen was talking about uh, connecting with a tree. I don't think, if I remember correctly, she didn't actually touch it, didn't even have to touch it. It was just a, something that happened between the two of them. That's marvelous. And then at a more obvious level, we can extend a hand to nature by helping it survive. Just, just one little item among many, many. Uh, earlier this year there was a, a meeting, in a conference on climate change in Cochabamba, Bolivia. And uh, as a result of that meeting, a declaration was issuing, spelling out the rights of Mother Earth, meant as a companion for the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So it's important to put human rights and nature's rights at a similar level. One more point about this invisible hand. Let's not forget that a hand has two ends, you know. There's this, the fingers here and the wrist, just, just to give it a physical uh, context to what I'm saying. But in other words, the hand connects to whatever we are touching, and also it's connected, obviously, to the toucher, the person who touched. And so, when we extend loving kindness to another person, say by touching them, as we do, the flow of love goes both ways, is felt palpably, tangibly, both ways, at the giving end 
and at the receiving end. Because this touch is not limited to actual hands. It might be mediated by other forms of communications, like between Diane Allen and the tree, or however, including words, including music, including even silence. Which, whichever way we touch each other, when we really do it, the experience tends to be all-encompassing, arousing deep feelings in the one who touches and the one who is being touched. In fact, the distinction between toucher and touched, between giver and receiver, between speaker and listener, tends to fade tends to vanish. Communication and connection, when deeply anchored, is our two-way streets. And soon, all that matters is not the items or the form that the communication takes, but the act of communication itself. And in this act of deep, deep, silent connection with ourselves, with the world, we come round to be finally and fully alive. Let's sit in silence for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.